History with Daisy and Elizabeth. This time we're going to be talking about John Stuart Mill. He's considered the preeminent 19th century Western philosopher, a proponent of liberalism and utilitarianism who's influenced subsequent thinkers, including Bertrand Russell, who was his godson. Mill was interested in education and his autobiography focuses on the influences of his intellectual development, including his father James and his wife Harriet. His own educational experience was extraordinary, but we feel that some of the things that it raises are evergreen. So, Daisy, can you give me a little bit of context to John Stuart Mill? Absolutely. As you said, John Stuart Mill is a very influential 19th century philosopher, economist. He's a politician and becomes a member of parliament. He's born in 1806. He's probably most famous now, maybe not for his economics, but maybe for On Liberty, which is a landmark book about the freedom of speech. As I say, toward the end of his life, he becomes a member of parliament. He's one of the first MPs to call for votes for women. But what we want to talk about today is we want to talk about his education. And his education is very famous because it's what we would probably today call homeschooling. And it may be the most famous example of homeschooling in history. But it's perhaps not the homeschooling that we think of today. It's it's quite an intense experience, isn't it? It, it is. It, it, intense is, is, the, is the word. You could also call it an educational experiment. It's an educational experiment and it's carried out by his father. So his father is really the key figure in all this. And his father is an interesting intellectual figure in his own right. James Mill, uh, yeah, as I say, Scottish, born in 1773, not particularly privileged. He does receive a good education and he's ordained as a minister in the Scottish church, which was what a lot of um, intelligent but perhaps not privileged uh, Scottish men would have, would, have, would have done at that time. But he loses his faith. Um, he, 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 yeah, he just sort of stops, stops believing. He goes to London. Um, he becomes a radical writer. He meets a lot of other radicals. In particular, he meets Jeremy Bentham, the very famous utilitarian philosopher who's, I think, is his, is his head or body still on display? His but, body is on display right? at UCL. Right. His head spends most of its life in a secure vault. Okay. It does come out from time to time. Okay, this is a bit weird. We should probably just pause here. We've just gone off on a random segue tangent about dead people's heads. So Jeremy Bentham, famous utilitarian philosopher, does he found University College London? Yes, he and was instrumental in the founding of University College London. And then he got in his will? He's, well, is when it? he yeah. died, he yeah. wanted his body turned into what he called the auto-icon. Um, so origi- Why not? originally Why not? the body as a whole yeah. was preserved and put on display, but their preservation techniques back then weren't necessarily <laughs> quite what we'd imagine today. And so there were various issues and the head has subsequently been removed and replaced with a waxwork. I, I believe the head has also sort of had a sort of difficult history. I think it was often stolen by students from King's College London, the rival university, maybe used as a football once. So, oh dear. Um, poor, poor Jeremy. Poor Jeremy. You, you went to UCL, <laughs> Lizzie, didn't you? Is that, is that I right? did, I did my yeah. master's there. Okay, so have yeah. you seen, you've seen the auto icon of Jeremy Bentham? Yeah, anyone can walk in and, anyone and, can and have, in, a look, okay. have a look at him, yeah. yeah. Um, I used to walk past it every every day when I was going into lectures. Okay, all right, well, there we go, some, what was it, is it you know, some some, some tax, taxidermy there for you, if, you, if you're interested. Go and have a look at Jeremy Bentham. But Jeremy Bentham is actually a, a, a significant figure in the story we're going to tell. So, obviously, the story we're telling is J- John Stuart Mill's education. John Stuart Mill's dad, James Mill, is 
good friends with Jeremy Bentham. And Jeremy Bentham is quite a big in- intellectual influence on James Mill. Um, so James and Jeremy are, are, are kind of chums. Actually, Jeremy Bentham's are much better off and more famous and, you know, probably more of this sort of intellectual influence there. So James Mill, when he, when he marries and has children, he decides that he wants to educate his son in the ways of radical and utilitarian philosophy. And he wants his son, his eldest son, John Stewart, he wants him to be a standard bearer for the kind of ideas that James Mill and Jeremy Bentham have. And he also, I think not only does he want to kind of educate John Stewart to be a standard bearer of these ideas, he also, he wants to kind of prove some of his own theories about education. So he has certain radical views on education. And and both James Mill and, and Jeremy Bentham think that humans are born as, as a, a blank slate, a tabula rasa, and their mind is shaped by their life experiences, particularly the experiences they have in, in childhood. In a way, he's 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 almost trying to bring up his son to, to be a soldier in this battle, <laughs> but he's also trying to bring up his son as a proof point in this in, intellectual battle to say, look, if I did it with my son, uh, you can, you know, this will prove some of my, my theories and, and not just his theories, um, Bentham's as, as well. So it is a grand educational experiment. It's interesting what you said about James Mill losing his faith because effectively he he may lose one faith, but he replaces it with a with a new faith, faith in the ideals of utilitarianism. I would agree with that. Yes, this is true. So we should pause for a bit and think about utilitarianism because I think it's incredibly relevant for this story. But it's also it's it's back in the news a little bit at the minute. Utilitarianism it's become a bit relevant at the moment. So what is utilitarianism? Well, it's a philosophy that's about maximising the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And I think Jeremy Bentham, he of UCL auto icon fame, uh, he is you know people would generally regard him as being the founder of utilitarianism. It's seen in the early 19th century as this very rationalist, very radical philosophy. As you say, it's it, it's almost an alternative to religion for people like James Mill. Um, Jeremy Bentham has these, he comes up with these phrases as well. He, he talks about ethical hedonism. Uh, that's a phrase that's used for me. And the hedonic calculus, which is this idea that you want, if you want to maximise the good of most people, you, you want to kind of try and almost have a, a mathematical formula for working out, well, what are the, the the principles that would lead to the most good for the most people? And you, you, when you hear these phrases like ethical hedonism and hedonic calculus, you sort of think, oh, hedonism, that sounds quite fun. And you might think an education based on utilitarianism would be involved lots of fun and excitement. But I would say that's probably a, not the case. <laughs> um, um, and, and, that, and, and this is where the interesting modern modern links come in, which is that there's a, a group of people today who are quite into utilitarianism. So it isn't something that just flourished in the 19th century and then, and then died a death. People nowadays still really think about it quite a lot. And a lot of millennials, it's become quite popular with a lot of young people. And it's particularly in the tech industry, the technology industry, and there's a group of people called effective altruists mm. who today, the EA community, who today really take a lot of inspiration from utilitarianism i'll give you some sort of concrete examples what are we talking about if we're saying maximizing the greatest good for the greatest number of people the utilitarians and effective altruists the thought experiment they'll often get you to think about is uh, they're often called trolley trolley problems or, or train problems and so one sort of classic example might be imagine if you have uh, 10 people who are all kind of stuck on a train line and a train speeding towards them and they can't get out and there's one person on the train. Now, suppose you have the power to divert that train, and if you divert the train, it will you know, crash into a wall and it will kill that one person on board, but by doing so, you'd save the lives of the 10 people. 
should you divert the train, you know, you'd kill the one person, but the 10 people would survive. So the utilitarian would say, absolutely, you're saving 10 people's lives. A lot of non-utilitarians would just somehow feel a bit squeamish about that because you are sort of actively pressing a button to <laughs> kill someone. <laughs> and yes, you're saving 10 people, but that one person's going to die who probably wouldn't have if you hadn't pressed the button. So you get these interesting, slightly um, unpleasant philosophical dilemmas. And these are all the kind of things that utilitarians and effect today, today they would probably be called effective altruists, talk about. Effective altruists are in the news at the moment, as I say, because one of the most famous effective altruists in the world is a guy called Sam Bankman-Fried, who is a cryptocurrency billionaire who is currently in in the middle of a really big fraud trial in the US for claims that he defrauded um, investors into his cryptocurrency company out of an awful lot of money. And there's been a lot of, I would say, quite salacious detail coming out of that trial (laughs) to do with um, some of his beliefs in effective altruism and the way that effective altruism influenced some of his decision making and I, I suppose a lot of those will give you what you might call the darker side of utilitarianism which I think was present in the 19th century in, in, in Mill and Bentham's time again I'll give you a few examples of this I'll give you one example that you know maybe seems a bit more a, a bit nicer and one where you might start to raise your eyebrows so a utilitarian or an effective altruist they might suggest that you should donate to a charity that has the most impact not perhaps your most your local charity So they would say, look, you know, don't go and volunteer at a soup kitchen. Don't give money to your local soup kitchen or your homeless charity. You're better off giving that money. The classic example they give is um, give it to a bed net charity in Africa that Mm. prevents malaria. Or deworming. Deworming. Deworming and bed nets. These are like the mantras of the effective altruists. You are going to save so many lives by donating to deworming and bed net charities. So give your money there. Don't give it to a homeless charity on the streets of London. And you look at that and you think, okay, I can maybe just about see where you're coming from. I think then when there's things that you start to think, oh, maybe, maybe not. And this came out in the Sam Bankman free trial is a utilitarian might say, well, actually, instead of working for a charity or volunteering in a soup kitchen, you should get a job that pays a lot of money. So you should get a job. Yeah. You know, trading cryptocurrency. You should live off as little as possible. And then you should donate the rest of the money to charity. And that is actually much better than working for a charity yourself. Because you could then, with the money you make, you could employ thousands of people to work at charity. Now, obviously, we can kind of see where that might go wrong. <laughs> and you can kind of see also how it might just be a justification for people who would just like to quite make a lot of money. <laughs> and that does seem to have been a bit of an issue in, in, the, in the current world, in the, the current moment we're living through with Sam Bankman-Fried. I would say, to be fair to Bentham, uh, Jeremy Bentham and James Mill, they um, never went on trial for a billion dollar cryptocurrency fraud. So we can't accuse them of that. Um, they might have had odd views about what to do with your body after you die. Um, but they didn't, they didn't, you know, as far as we know, kind of bankrupt anyone on that scale. But I think, you know, that, that modern discussion still brings, teases out some of the key issues about utilitarianism. And, and whilst James Mill and Jeremy Bentham, I think, you know, certainly went into that kind of, you know, financial engineering or what have you. I think there is an aspect of them where they might have kind of fitted into today's modern tech world in that they seem, they often, they're so focused on rationalism, they're really focused on logical thought, there's not much emphasis on emotions or sentiments or sympathy. There's a real drive to efficiency there. Absolutely. Everything is this calculus. And that's where I think these analogies with modern tech people, cryptocurrency people, Sam Bankman-Fried, effective altruists, everything's an equation. Mm. Everything's like, how can we optimise? 
Um, and if you, you know, move in that to those technology circles, that's the kind of thing that people are always talking about. How do I optimize for X? How do I optimize for Y? You know, what's, what's my, you know, I need to draw a maximization curve and what have you. And I can kind of get the impression if Jeremy Bentham, James Mill, John Stuart Mill were around today, they would definitely be um, somewhere in that community. You know, not, not as I say, in the, the defrauding aspect of it, <laughs> but I think they would be in that, in that thing of, you know, well, how do I decide what I'm going to have for dinner tonight? Well, I need to draw a curve, you know, like <laughs> I need some data. <laughs> I think they'd be on heel. Yeah, they would so be on heel. I think they so would be on heel. I absolutely do. So um, we should say heel. What is heel? It's this. Um, it's this replacement for food, isn't it? It's the idea that you know. Again, it's a bit of a, a tech thing that uh, eating three meals a day is so wasteful and so time-consuming, and you could just have a nutritionally packed milkshake instead. So heel is. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's like slim fast for tech bros, right? And so uh, John Stuart Mill. He's sort of brought up in this world and he says in his autobiography, and we know a lot about his education because he wrote about it a lot in his autobiography. And he says in his autobiography of his father, he says the element which was chiefly deficient in his moral relation to his children was that of tenderness. So imagine getting that as you're, uh, you know, summing up from your son. <laughs> uh, so I think that probably gives a picture of the kind of guy that, that James Mill is. And as I say, he's, he's you know, having this, this, this huge plan to develop the best possible, the optimised education for his eldest son. And so what does that optimised education look like? So there, there are some things which would have been fairly recognisable to a lot of people at this time. For all that James Mill is quite unorthodox, the curriculum he chooses starts out fairly orthodox. So James Mill is really big on classical education. Um, this is really important for him. Plato, he loves Plato. Um, so even though he's, lo- he's lost his Christian faith, but he does retain this great respect and admiration for the, for the classics. So Greek is a huge part of John, young John Stuart's education. And John Stuart Mill says in his autobiography, he has no memory of a time when he was not learning Greek, right? He, he said, I have no remembrance. This is literally a quote. I have no remembrance of the time when I began to learn Greek. I have been told that it was when I was three years old. Now, what I find remarkable about this is there are big discussions in the UK about what's the right age to teach children to read their own language, <laughs> right? And there's people who go, oh, we should be more like Finland, we should start at seven. And there are people like, oh, no, I'm not, you know, maybe four or five. John Stuart Mill doesn't even talk about when he learns to read English. Like, that's not even mentioned. Like, I keep thinking, is that two? Like, is he in the womb? Like, when, when is he doing this, right? But he starts Greek at three. And at the same age, he's doing arithmetic in the evening. And he's reading history books by himself and he's going walk for walks with his father where he has to explain what he's read the day before. So that's all before the age of eight. So before the age of eight, there's a lot of Greek, there's arithmetic and there's reading history. So is his father supervising all of this? It must be quite hard work on his, his father. It is tremendously hard work. And we have talked before in a number of contexts about how hard the Victorians work. We talked about Miss Buss and Miss Bill working these long hours and never retiring. We talked about just how you can tell just sort of incidentally in, in the in the exam papers where they talk about a, a workman and their sort of, you know, normal 11 hour days. And we talked about the exam timetables where, you know, it wasn't just blue collar, you know, labourers. It was... Exam you know, students were expected to, to, to be doing nine hours of exams a day and you know six, six days a week. So James Mill is absolutely, I mean, perhaps this is another thing he has in common with some of these, these modern tech bros. James Mill is incredibly hardworking and, and puts in very, very long hours. And he's not, as I said before, he's not wealthy. He doesn't have a lot of uh, family money. He's quite dependent a bit on, on, on Jeremy Bentham. He's dependent on uh, sort of friends. He, he writes and earns a bit of money that way. He does get a job at the East India Company which helps him, but he does also, he doesn't just have John Stuart Mill to look after, he has, I think, in total five children in the end, and a wife, and so he, 
you know he's he's he has to work hard on his day job he can't he, this isn't he can't just full-time dedicate himself to, to John Stuart Mill's education uh, some of the education that John Stuart Mill gets is helping his father's work so for example when John Stuart Mill was 11 uh, James Mill's History of India is published and he will get up at 5am the pair of them they'll get up at 5am and they'll correct the proofs together I think that there's uh, one of one of one of James Mill's friends I think says you know that, that even with all his work he will try and spend he'll still try and spend four or five hours a day supervising John Stuart Mill's schoolwork, and that's on top of all of the work he's doing and writing this enormously epic history of India I will throw in one thing he writes this epic history of India he works with the East India Company he never visits India and he doesn't speak any of the Indian languages so you know you do think well they work very hard but they got away with things you couldn't get away with nowadays yeah so that's that's John Stuart Mill up to the age of, of of eight and then from eight to twelve he starts learning Latin geometry algebra calculus so those subjects come up come in and he carries on with all the private reading which is mostly historical readings. His father also makes him write poetry in English, even though he hasn't read much poetry in English, because he thinks it's useful for persuading people. So his father's a little bit sort of sceptical about poetry and, 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 and that kind of thing, but he thinks, well, there's a use to it because it's the kind of thing that persuades people. So he's thinking about rhetoric, I guess. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and he's thinking also about this, that he wants John Stuart Mill to be able to convince people of all these great ideas that he's going to have. Does he practice oracy or oration at all? He, there is a bit of that. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of that. Yeah, there's a, there's some exam, examples of that uh, where I think he has to sort of stand up and practice re- sort of reciting arguments and 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 and, and reading things out. You know, to, as I say, to try and set him up to to be able to debate and argue with people, and that will be a big a big part of of John Stuart Mill's life. At the age of twelve, he starts on scholastic logic and Plato, because his father adores P- Plato. And then at the age of thirteen, perhaps it's a you know, piece de resistance, his father takes him through a complete course in political economy. And that's the big thing that a lot of the Benthamites, utilitarians are also really into political economy. It's very, you know, quite, quite new, quite trendy. That's in a sense, in a, in a way, a lot of what they've been doing before then has been building towards this. The interesting thing is it starts very young, but also finishes quite young. When, when, when John Stuart Mill's 14, he, uh, he leaves England, he goes to France, stay with some family friends and he says then, after my return, then my studies went on under my father's general direction. He was no longer my schoolmaster. So so really, the really intensive bit of this education is age three to 14. Is he then responsible for educating his younger siblings? Does he have to do any of that work? Yes, he does. His father, James Mill, can be quite severe on him with this. So, yeah, when John gets a bit older, he will educate his younger siblings. And what James Mill will do is he will deprive the children, all the children, of their lunch if they make a mistake even of just one word in their translations. And John Stuart Mill, if they make a, if the if the younger children make a mistake, John Stuart Mill will go hungry too. So he's incentivized as a teacher to not make his not not, go, not have his, his younger siblings make mistakes because he will he won't get his, his lunch if they make a mistake. That's pretty tough, obviously, and one of the Mill family friends says he thinks this approach is excessively severe. He says that. I suppose what you would say the flip side of that is Clearly at the time, a friend thought it was excessively severe. Clearly nowadays we'd be horrified by it. Relative to what is going on in some of the big English public schools, I think, Lizzie, you will tell me, <laughs> depriving someone of their lunch would be, um, would, be, would, be, would, be, would be nothing compared to some of the punishments that were being meted out in the big public schools at this time. Presumably he isn't beaten by his father. There's no corporal punishment going no, on. 
no there isn't um so there's things that nowadays we would we would deplore but no no kind of none of the kind of sort of floggings and beatings that you would be getting in, in a lot of the big famous public schools i know benson was very against that which was yeah quite enlightening yeah so they do have they do have the, the benthamites the utilitarians the, the blank slate guys whatever they they are a little bit like sort of what you might call nowadays maybe behaviorism they are really big on associations they are really big on you have to associate pleasure with things that are good for you and pain with things that are bad for you. So it is very important for them to establish the rewards and punishments. But as I say, the rewards and punishments, when they talk about pain, it's not the, the level of pain you would be talking about perhaps with, as I say, you know, actual sort of physical violence that, that you, you might have with a lot of children who have been getting in other places. It's, it is the denial of food, but it's more kind of praise and blame, reward and punishment. And what does the curriculum not have on it then? What, what is uh, John Stuart Mill missing out on? I would say the two biggest things he's missing out on relative to what you would have got at an independent school or even a day, a, a public school or even a day school, any kind of education at this time, I would say the two big things he's missing out on are religion and sport. So religion, um, as I say, James Mill is... Is he an atheist? I think, yeah, basically I think he is an atheist. <laughs> um... So that's a, a, a really big, a really big difference. Um, and he says, I am thus one of the very few examples in this country of one who has not thrown off religious belief, but never had it. I grew up in a negative state with regard to it. And as he says, that is very, very rare in the early 19th century in England. It's exceptionally rare across all social classes. And that's why I think he's really interesting to think about today, because that's much more common today. It's much more common today to have non-denominational schools, to have educations where religion is not a huge part of it so in that sense mill you know both mills are ahead of their time yeah i mean bentham's very instrumental in that too right in the, in the yes. founding of ucl because yes. up until that point people were denied access to education if they weren't within the church of england you know, yes. higher education exactly um, so you might almost see this yeah this is a really important moment almost in you talk about the dis- disestablishment of church and state but in some ways a far more profound and radical thing is the disassociation of church and education because you think of the way that the church has been so tightly tightly bound up with education and in lots of ways actually today it still is I, I mean i was seeing some really interesting stats the other day about in in a lot of countries there are more in a lot of sort of western developed countries there are more children at catholic schools than there are going to catholic church mm. um and i think you might say the same potentially about the church of england there may be more children in church of england schools than perhaps are going to mass in church of england churches um so education does still have that tie with religion even in our secular age probably the place where religion has most maybe has most impact maybe with education but it is nothing like it was in 1806 so in that way mill um both mills they're a they're a sign of what's to come sign of the future um and the other thing i talk about sport mill doesn't play any sport and he says uh later on he says i never was a boy he told a friend decades later never played at cricket it is better to let nature have her way so a little bit of sort of poignancy there. <laughs> he never got to play sport. He never got to play cricket. It's it's a it's a very full on intellectual academic education. There's yeah, there's not much there's, there's not much PE. <laughs> so he has these daily walks with his father. But he, he does not necessarily. Yeah, and later in life he enjoys hiking and he enjoys walking in mountains. But it, I suppose the, the big thing you'd have got in a a public school at this time the team sport, all those team sports. He doesn't do any of those. And it's, it is quite, for all that he's got his younger siblings, he's clearly the focus of everything. So you also get the impression it's quite solitary. Um, he's, he's quite alone. And again, that would have been 
would I mean, be that's different. One of the criticisms that's levelled these days about home education that the socialisation aspect is perhaps you know certainly doesn't come as readily and has to be yeah. worked at. Mm. Do you think that's the case for John Stuart Mill then? I mean, other than the interactions with his siblings, he's not really having uh, normal social interactions with his peers. So I think this is a really this is the, the, a really interesting point. Let's let's move on to kind of judging the success of this education because you can judge success of education measured by a lot of different metrics. You know, you, now if we judge it on the the, the the maybe the narrow metric of is does he turn out to be super smart? <laughs> <laughs> then y- y- yes it's a it's a it's a it's a wild roaring success or perhaps you know better to quote Isaiah Berlin here Isaiah Berlin says it's an appalling success <laughs> there are intellectuals who visit James Mill's house and they're astonished by John Stewart's knowledge even in his early team they're astonished by his ability to engage in thoughtful discussions it's it's incredible um he is incredibly well read he he, he really isn't just learning these things by rote. He really understands a lot of his stuff. He has this incredibly in-depth understanding of some really sort of tough um, academic academic subjects. And that stands him well in his career. But, as I say, that's one metric. And you rightly raise the, the other metrics. <laughs> and critics of homeschooling have always uh, kind of had these critiques that they might say, well, look, OK, maybe it does result in these intellectual prodigies, but it creates all these other enormous problems. And one of them is that it will hinder the development of social skills because you've got these children who are essentially, you know, alone with themselves or maybe their siblings, but they're, they're kind of cut off from the rest of the world. Another concern is that, oh, you're just drilling facts. You, you know, you, if you're doing these crazy educational experiments, you're inhibiting kind of creativity and original thoughts. And I suppose you, then you might push both of those to a further level. And, and the third critique would be you will cause mental health problems. For all of these different reasons, you know, it's too hot house, it's too pressured. You're going to just, you know, you might get these narrow gains, but you're going to destroy their mental health. So, three critiques: social skills inhibits creativity, mental health crisis. So let's let's take each of those in turn. And 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 how does John Stuart Mill and James Mill how do they stack up on these? So on the social skills one, I think Mill is okay. I think it would be harsh to say he goes through life unable to make friends or relationships. Um, he does seem to have made friends easily. He does seem to have had positive, positive relationships, including with women. As I say, he's you know quite an ally of, of women. He supports women's suffrage. Um, his big relationship, the love of his life, it is slightly kind of um, awkward in that he falls in love with a woman who's married and has two children. Um, when she, uh, when her husband dies, he does eventually marry her later in life. They seem to have been very close. Um, so I think on the social skills aspect, I think it would be hard to say he he, he lacked those. Um, he did say that when he was younger, he, he was maybe greatly and disagreeably self-conceited. Um, and he said, uh, he said, I probably acquired this this bad habit. He, he would argue with his elders. He would be disputatious. He would just directly contradict things which he heard said. Mm. And you can kind of see how someone brought up in this environment would. They just go, well, I disagree. You're wrong. <laughs> and not realise that perhaps that's not the thing you say. And he says, I suppose I acquired this bad habit from having been encouraged in an unusual degree to talk on matters beyond my age and with grown persons, while I never had inculcated on me the usual respect for them. So he's probably quite an annoying teenager. Okay, so I think that's fair to say. He's an annoying teenager, but I think there's also plenty of evidence he grows out of that. Yeah, and a lot of teenagers have that phase. Exactly. You don't have to just be, you don't, you know, it's not like he's the only annoying teenager in the world. (laughs) It's not like he's the only teenager who talks back to older people, right? So I think you'd be... Yes, exactly. In in fact, and and unlike a lot of teenagers, I think they know everything. He did know a lot. So (laughs) I think it's hard to pin the social skills issue on the homeschooling 
and the educational experiment. I think he turns out okay on that front. I think the relationship with the wife is quite interesting too because I guess one of the worries is that when people are so intellectually hothoused that they might find it difficult to collaborate or work with other people but he really does do quite a lot of his work with his wife and credits her with a lot of yes. his breakthroughs. He does, he does, yeah. So he's always very generous to yeah the intellectual help his wife gives him and lots of the times he says I couldn't have written these things without her. And not, but not just his wife. You know, he collaborates with people. He works on a lot of, in his early career, he works on a lot of newspapers and uh, journals and has a little coterie of intellectual friends. So, yeah, he's, you know, he's pretty outgoing. So on that front, I think his education doesn't kind of hold him back. But the other the other two issues, I said, uh, if you have this very hot house education, it's all about facts and drilling facts. And we might think here of, of grad grind in in, uh, in hard times, yeah, which we should do an episode on, you know, <laughs> uh, because I think the grad grind caricature Dickens when he in Dickens in Hard Times caricatures this very fact based model of learning with the, the the schoolmaster Thomas Gradgrind and there is I think a suggestion that yeah he was caricaturing in that character a lot of these utilitarians who just focused on, on facts. And and Dickens' critique through this character of Gradgrind in Hard Times is that drilling facts will inhibit creativity. But again, I don't think this holds true for Mill either. And in in some ways, what's really, really fascinating is he's his 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 dad's brought him up to be this ideal advocate of utilitarianism but actually John Strickmill demonstrates huge potential for original thought because he breaks away from some of his father and Bentham's ideals ideas um, and in some ways he what, what James Mill can't foresee is that a lot of the talents he develops in his son will later be turned against some of his own work and that he's equipping his son for a journey away from him and, and the, the thing I, 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 I think I do kind of respect about John Strickland as well is he doesn't do it in that kind of very teenage way of I'm just going to rebel against everything you said. That it isn't a total rebellion. It's much more nuanced. It's more of an extension, a building on. And so he thinks a lot more about liberty and the importance of liberty than his, his father does. And it's not that his father's against that, but for Mill, that becomes, for John Strickland Mill, that becomes more important. All of that in a weird way, even though his father maybe was not especially happy with it, is to his father's credit. <laughs> that he has developed him with these enormous powers of thought, which he uses in quite a sophisticated way, and not always to advance everything that his father thought, but to extend and to, in some places, adapt and, and disagree with. So in that sense, I would say, you know, another big tick. Um, it's looking good. For now. Yeah, but <laughs> there's a but coming, isn't there? Um, so the third thing I said is people will critique homeschooling and they'll say, oh, you're just going to the kid's going to have a breakdown. If you do this, you're going to precipitate, in the phrase today, you're going to precipitate a mental health crisis. And actually, this is interesting, because we, we talk nowadays about removing the stigma around mental health. Mill is really open in his autobiography. He does have a mental health breakdown, and he talks about it at length. So on this front, you start to think, oh, maybe it hasn't all been, um, you know, it hasn't all worked out perfectly. Basically, in his, in his sort of early adulthood, John Stuart Mill has this intense period of, of jadedness, a sense of purposelessness. He questions the pursuit of all his intellectual and political aims. And some of the bits in autobiography where he talks about this, they're by turns kind of heartrending and also maybe just slightly in some ways sort of so heartrending they, you know, become a little bit pathetic. There's one moment where he says, suppose all your objects in life were realised, all the changes in institutions and opinions which you are looking forward to could be completely affected at this very instant. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? And an irrepressible self-consciousness distinctly answered, no. At this, my heart sank within me. The whole foundation on which my life was constructed fell down. 
All my happiness was to have been found in the continual pursuit of this end. The end had ceased to charm, and how could there ever again be any interest in the means? I seemed to have nothing left to live for. So this is his early 20s sort of breakdown. It's like his dad's brought him up to be this hero of the utilitarian cause. And I suppose the slight bit we've missed out is he does in his late teens, early 20s, throw himself into this cause, makes all these friends, does loads of writing, really into it. And then suddenly goes, what if all my utilitarian aims were met? You know, what if laws were passed tomorrow and all the institutions were reformed? How would I feel? And he just goes, oh, you know, I wouldn't be, I still wouldn't be happy. And, and he just falls into this funk. Uh, of despair so it's yeah this is where people would say well look this is all James Mill's fault he's educated him on this narrow tram line uh, and all of a sudden it's it's not enough you need something more as I say there are some bits which are inadvertently some bits of this which are probably inadvertently a little bit um get a little bit absurd in the in this middle of this breakdown he says I was seriously tormented by the thought of the exhaustibility of musical combinations the octave consists only of five tones and two semitones which can be put together in only a limited number of ways, of which but a small proportion are beautiful. Most of these, it seemed to me, must have been already discovered, and there could not be room for a long succession of Mozarts and Wavers to strike out, as these had done, entirely new and surpassingly rich veins of musical beauty. So he's just winding himself up that there'll be no music left. So he's really fallen into this, this pit of despair. But he climbs out. He does, but how does he climb out? So he climbs out of this pit of despair, not with the hedonic calculus or with uh, optimization curves. He climbs out with poetry. (laughs) So in order to overcome this kind of crisis, this mental health crisis, he discovers solace in poetry, particularly the works of Wordsworth, who is the most romantic and least utilitarian of poets. And and, and by this stage as well, the least sort of liberal uh, or or, or kind of radical of, of poets um, and in some ways, this was really interesting because, again, I don't want to keep bringing it back to Sam Bankman-Fried, but I was reading some bits. Uh, there's a new book out about Sam Bankman-Fried by Michael Lewis, the, the, the writer who writes about finance. And he was quoting Sam Bankman-Fried as saying uh, he thought Sam Bankman-Fried thought all literature was junk. So it's this young cryptocurrency billionaire, maths whiz, really hot on maths. And he's like, why do we have to read books? Why do we have to read? And it, it, so one of the things he said is, why do we read? Should we should read books. When I read a book, I see a failure. It should be a, a six paragraph memo. And the other thing he said is, why have we got to bother with Shakespeare? The plots are so outrageous. It's ridiculous. And he also said, statistically, what are the chances that Shakespeare is the best writer of all time? You know, I can prove statistically he wasn't. Um, and again, I, I don't want to caricature Bentham and James Mill. I think that's, I, I don't think they'd have said anything like that. But there is definitely, in John Stuart Mill's upbringing, a bit of a suspicion of literature um, and maybe a little bit of a suspicion of poetry. And so it is really striking that the way John Stuart Mill digs himself out of his mental health crisis is through poetry. And so that's maybe also the first inkling where you're like, maybe he's starting to break from his father a bit and break from some of this utilitarian maximising good that he has to, he, you know, he, he almost has to wallow in these works of Wordsworth, which are all about the beauty of the natural world. Um, and it's by reading those that he, he recovers. And, and I'll, I'll quote actually a modern a modern biographer of Mill, Richard Reeves. He's, he he it, this really influences this, this this mental health breakdown influences his political thoughts. So here's here's Richard Reeves, his modern biographer. Uh, he says uh, Mill became convinced that technocratic reform of social, educational, and political arrangements was an insufficient basis for progress. The character of individuals became as important to Mill as the design of institutions or legislation. The emotions become more important for him. And they become as important as the, the sort of intellectual, the, the intellectual aims as well. Um, and he says in his autobiography, this is Mill, the cultivation of the feelings became one of the cardinal points 
in my ethical and philosophical creed. So that's his kind of mental health crisis, but he does get through it. So in terms of those critiques of homeschooling, I guess it's, yeah, people will have their own views on whether this was a success or not. But should we be teaching all of the children Greek from age three? I mean, and producing a whole generation of John Stuart Mills. This is the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> Look, what do, we, what do we make of it all today? You can say on the one hand, this is insane. You know, Greek at the age of three, what is he doing? Political economy, getting up at five in the morning, madness. On the other hand, you could say, and we've said this before uh, in this podcast, you could say, is, is our astonishment at what the Mills did, is it a sign that we are a fallen people? Do we have too low expectations of young children? Because the reality is he did learn all this stuff. I mean, it wasn't for show. He could read Greek at three or whatever. I can't believe Greek at three. I always think with that, really. <laughs> but, you know, he could he eventually could read Greek. And the other thing that you, you realise from this, I hope that one of the things that brought home to me, maybe for, maybe they've got something here, is I said to you before, his father was not that keen on on kids' books, on, on literature, on books for fun. But he did borrow some from some friends and let him read them. So he let him have a little treat. And the little treat that he had were the Arabian Nights, the Arabian Towers, uh, Don Quixote, Miss Edgeworth's popular towers. And Don Quixote really stuck in my mind because I, I read Mills' biography just after I graduated. And Don Quixote was one of the books on a course I did at university on the European novel. Mm. And I remember the thing I remember about it is no one read it. No one read Don Quixote. It was a thousand pages long, right? And you're thinking this was John Stuart Mill's little treat time, you know. And we were we were we, we were graduates at you know one of the best universities in the country or whatever. And we're going, oh, it's a bit too long, though, a thousand pages. Um, and I know you know things change and times change, and there was no TV then. But you start to think when you read this, maybe it is easier to learn a lot of this stuff when you're young. And maybe the habits you get into at a young age stay with you in life. And maybe it is quite hard to build some of those habits when you're older. The other thing I think you also think about is what if we do want people to achieve great things and not just great things for themselves. But if you think all the problems we face in life, think, you know, society faces, you know, things like climate change, things like, you know, conflict, whatever, you know, things, all the technological innovations we're going to need to, to deal with things. We need people to be able to achieve those and to get people up to that standard where they can do that do you need something like this i don't know so i just just worth thinking about i think you need to be careful daisy i think those effective altruists could be <laughs> kidnapping babies and setting up a, a, a rural I know. school to help solve climate change well the interesting uh... thing the, the big difference between the effective altruists and the 19th century utilitarians is the effective altruists now they're all like no you shouldn't have children they're not like have children and homeschool them they're like you shouldn't have them because they're a burden on the environment and they'll stop you doing great things so actually the effective altruists have gone completely the other way from james mill on that so um james mill for all that he believed he believed in malthus and Malth- all the malthusian stuff about the, the problem when you have too many children is the food supply but 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 james mill had five children so he might have intellectually subscribed to malthus but he didn't practically subscribe to it uh, maybe it was harder then we won't go into that so so yeah where are we up to um what are we supposed to make of it all nowadays i don't know what do you think where do you come down on is, is it crazy it actually you know could we do a little bit more and more of this what, what's, what's your take the thing is john strip mill eventually turns out okay yeah but what about the four siblings i know you can't there's not very much you can find about them and the, the other thing the, the really annoying thing that you never know is because mill doesn't have children himself i always think the ultimate judge would be if mill had, had children himself what would he have done 
And you just don't know that because he doesn't have children. The other thing I love about Mill is he does this whole summing up of it in his autobiography. I mean, I, I think I think he comes across brilliantly in his autobiography. Other people may disagree, but he in, and he what he is genuinely quite even-handed. So he says that bit I quoted at the start, and my dad didn't really have much tenderness for any of us. <laughs> but when he weighs it up, he's not doing one of these sort of modern misery memoirs where he says, "I had this awful childhood. Feel sorry for me." He genuinely seems to view it in this very detached, even-handed manner. He weighs up the good and the, the, the bad, the pros and the cons. And the things that he, you know, says were the pros of it. He says, look, I, I don't approve of brutal and tyrannical systems of teaching. He says, but you have got to be careful not to go too far the other way. And this is his quote. He says, because if you do, you'll be training up a race of men who will be incapable of doing anything which is disagreeable to them. So he's kind of saying, you know, sometimes education, you have to do things which you don't necessarily like. And he also says it's very laudable to render as much as possible of what the young are required to learn easy and interesting. But when this principle is pushed to the length of not requiring them to learn anything but what has been made easy and interesting, one of the chief objects of education is sacrificed. Those are interesting things to think about today. And I would certainly say anybody who's teaching, certainly when I was teaching, I always wrestled with that. To what extent? Do you want to make something? How easy and interesting do you make it? And if you make it too easy and interesting, are you losing something? Where do you draw that line? But you don't want it to be too hard or so hard that it's off-putting either. So Mill is wrestling with these issues and he's saying, well, maybe my dad wasn't all bad. And he also says that probably the, the, the nicest thing he says about his dad, if I've accomplished anything, I owe it, among other fortunate circumstances, to the fact that through the early training bestowed upon me by my father, I started, I may fairly say, with an advantage of a quarter of a century over my contemporaries. Mm. So he says when he goes out into the wide world and he sees all his peers, he feels like he's 25 years ahead of them because of this education he's had. And he says, when I look at what everyone else is doing, the little bit of Latin and Greek they get and the years they spend acquiring it, he just feels what he had was so much more effective, so much more efficient. So for all that he is critical of some of the aspects of, of his father's approach, and I think we would be too, he does still say... There were good things to come out of this. And it's given me good things in life. Okay, Daisy, you've inspired me. I'm going to go home. I'm going to have some fuel for dinner. And I'm going to sit and I'm going to read Don Quixote. Yes! yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, Don Quixote was the easy stuff, Lizzie. You were truly inspired. You Sorry, know. I'm going to go, go and do and your course Adam of. Smith. Yes! <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, there you go. Well, people will have their own views about it, but. I think it, it is fascinating to see how differently they did it and how different the, those, those aims were from, from today. So it's a really interesting one to look at.